Hi, thanks for joining us and it's great to be with you. Well, in our part of the world, we are looking forward in the pretty close future to being able to meet face to face in our churches on a Sunday in buildings like this. Uh, yeah, we're looking forward to it happening sooner rather than later. Uh, we've been locked out of our churches for the better part of a year uh, in order to control the spread of the coronavirus and we look forward to that situation changing for us soon. Uh, now I don't know whether you're watching from the other side of the world or you're a local or you go to a different church but as we do prepare on whatever timelines we're on as we prepare to start to think about coming back together as God's people on a Sunday meeting face to face and in person it is worth thinking about as we prepare for that thinking about what is going to be important about what is going to define us as a church going forward. Uh, like many of my brothers and sisters around the world, uh, I've been asking myself the question throughout this pandemic, what is God doing in the world and through his people at this time? Believing in the sovereignty of God, uh, God's goodwill towards us, believing that God works all things for for good, that he can even bring good out of bad situations. We've been asking ourselves, what is God doing at this time? What does God want us to be learning at this time? Now, I think that at least one of the answers to that question is God has been teaching us what it means to be the church. Um, as we've not been able to meet in our church buildings, um, we've become aware of how much they defined us uh, the church is not the church simply because it meets in a building each week. The church is still the church when it meets through a screen. Um, and the fact that our identity has been adjusted a bit helps us to think with a fresh perspective. So what does it mean to be God's people at this time? What is God doing and how is God working um, through his people at that time? How is God going to be bringing good out of this dreadful situation that we are living through globally. Well, in, uh, in the Old Testament era, in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther, we read the history of God's people at another time when God's people were um, locked out, they were in exile in a much more dramatic, long-term way. God's people were in exile in Babylon for about 70 years. Um, they were there as a chastisement of the Lord because they had been repeatedly, generationally, systemically disobedient. Um, and they were gone for 70 years. And their, not just their temple, but their whole city, Jerusalem, was destroyed as well. And in Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther, we're able to get insight into God's people as he brings them back to Jerusalem and as they rebuild not only the temple and the walls of the city, but as they rebuild their community life and come to understand the things that are important to them as God's people, gives us a great insight. Um, and you know what? It's sometimes hard to see how God's working when you're living through something. It's a lot easier to be able to look at um, words uh, from history where we can see how God 
worked through a certain time. We can see how God worked in his people. We can see how God worked to bring about good. So we're going to spend a few weeks looking at the book of Ezra. And uh, if you have a Bible at home, you might like to open up ready um, for the book of Ezra in chapter 1. When I first became a Christian as a young adult uh, in my early 20s, uh, it was a dramatic change in my life. I'd come out of an atheist, maybe a bit agnostic background, and I made this radical commitment to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. And it was such a radical change from what my life had been like before that I was able to see God very easily, very frequently, very dramatically working in my life in all sorts of ways. Um, I saw God working, you know, um, giving me this like love for his word, making me want to go off, <laughs> making me even have the idea to go off and study uh, his word at Bible college. I saw God opening doors to, um, you know, ministry opportunities and relationships and helping me out in so many ways. Um, and I think in large part because it was also new and because it was such a dramatic change from what my life had been like before. But when our lives are less dramatic um, and as we uh, go through the various seasons of life, I think that our understanding of how God is at work in us and through us and in the world can change. And whilst, you know, when we, when we can use adjectives to describe our faith in our life, when we use adjectives like settled and certain and firm um, and uh, uh, assured, established. Um, when we use those less dramatic but more enduring adjectives, I think that um, it can also be true that in our Christian lives we, have a, we get a bigger view of God, but that God, although God is omnipotent and sovereign, we may not see God at work in our daily lives as much. Um, you know, um, I feel like when, when I first became a Christian, uh, this metaphor came to my mind. It was, it was, it's a bit like when you, when you throw in an effervescent tablet of Barocca into a glass of water and it all fizzes up and gets stirred up and there's so much change happening. Um, but over time, it's changed. It's changed. Life has changed, but it becomes settled. And, uh, and I think that we can go through seasons of our Christian life where we are so settled, um, we are so, um, you know, so assured in our faith, so at peace, that we fail to see God at work in an imminent sense. Like we fail, you know, we, we see more God um, as sovereign and controlling the seasons rather than the four pieces of weather we're going through in a day. We see God at a distance, you know, um, leading us to take certain steps through our life, leading us through this journey of faith, but less so in our day-to-day -day behavior, like less, less um, oh, God's cleared up that parking spot for me at Bunnings or at the supermarket. You know, we have a bigger view of God, but perhaps a less imminent view of God and how God works. So as we look at this book of Ezra, and in chapter 1 in particular, it's remarkable because it does teach us the powerful yet gentle way that God intervened in world history, in the history of his people, um, in order to bring them back from exile to Jerusalem. 
So we'll, we'll, we'll read that in a moment. Just before we start on the book of Ezra, I need to put it in a bit of context. So I mentioned Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther as three historical books in the Old Testament which all describe the return of God's people from an exile, the return of God's people to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. Um, now the age in which this happened was between 538 and 433 BC, so it's about two and a half thousand years ago. And um, what had happened prior to the book of Ezra, as I said, God's people had been sent into exile under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and they'd been in exile for about, for about 70 years. Babylon, in the meantime, recently uh, in their history, had been overthrown by the Persian Empire and the Persian ruler Cyrus. And that is where our story picks up. So as we read um, about Ezra and his leadership, his return of God's people to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple, we read in the first verse, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, or more literally, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Um, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and build the temple. Um, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors are now living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold and goods and livestock to go with them. So we see God stirring the spirit of Cyrus, and not only Cyrus, but also of his people. It says in verse 5, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So what we see happening here is a dramatic event in history, the return of an exiled people back to their land um, and the rebuilding of the temple of Jerusalem. So dramatic historical events, but not preceded by what we might call um, a dramatic work of God. You know, this is not God separating the waters when his people were escaping from Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, God is not... Uh, upending the, the natural world here, it simply says God stirred the spirit. God stirred the spirit of Cyrus, the secular king. God stirred the spirit of his people. And presumably God stirred the spirit of the general community because they were so generous in sending these people off with silver and gold and livestock and everything that they would need to re-establish their city. Um, quite amazing. So, and if we drill down a bit further, God, when God stirred the spirit and we ask like, how did God do that and why did God do that? What was the manner in which it, it all happened? We see, it says, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus. So what was this word spoken by Jeremiah? Um, we read in the prophecy of Jeremiah about how God's people will be taken into exile for 70 years. Um, but that they will then be brought back. Um, and we read uh, in chapter 29 of Jeremiah that whilst they're, in, um, whilst they're in Babylon, they're to seek the peace and prosperity of the city 
in which they've been taken into exile and to pray for it um, so that it prospers and they do too. And then in verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, we read this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You'll call on me and I will listen to you. You'll come and pray and I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So God's stirring of the spirit, whatever it means, of Cyrus happened uh, to fulfill the words that he had spoken earlier through the prophet. So God intervenes, whether it's by stirring spirit or of someone or, or another means, God intervenes to fulfill his words, his promises, uh, to fulfill his plans. That's what we see happening in this example. Um, God is in keeping with his word. He intervenes um, in that 70-year period as he prophesied um, and makes it possible for God's people to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. God also intervenes not only to fulfill his word, his promise, his prophecy, but also he intervenes for the good of his people. And so aren't they wonderful words that we read in Jeremiah? And it's why so many of us know this, these verses. Uh, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So God intervenes to fulfill his words and promises, to advance his kingdom. Um, and I, I take that because when God's people were blessed to return, they didn't just experience a general sort of blessing. Um, they also experienced, a, you know, a, a, an involvement in the rebuilding of the temple. So God is advancing his kingdom in accordance with his word. He's doing it for the good of his people, but he's doing it in the most gentle and invisible of ways. God stirs the spirit of Cyrus. In verse 5, we read about um, the... The, uh, the people of Judah and the general community. God stirs the spirit. It doesn't sound like a, um, a visible or dramatic thing at all. Um, and perhaps, perhaps it is more the way God is at work through his people by stirring the spirit of them and of others around them. If you've been watching the news at all over the last couple of weeks and months, you will have seen um, an increasing polarisation of very different forms of government that we're seeing on our news. We've got at the one extreme the very liberal democracies of the world and we've got at the other extreme the very totalitarian or autocratic or communist governments. Now, when, a, when an authoritarian, autocratic government is displeased with something its citizens are doing, um, what does it do? It sends in the soldiers. Um, it arrests people, it detains them, it, uh, it, um, uh, it disappears people. Um, it's a dramatic show of shock and awe, force often. Um, and yet, remarkably, remarkably, what we've also seen is that when the spirit of a people is moved in a certain direction, the spirit is more powerful than a thousand soldiers and that the, the biggest show of shock and awe that a government can 
can, can demonstrate. For example, look at what we've seen happening in Belarus and look at what we've seen happening in Hong Kong. Um, the spirit of a people cannot be suppressed, uh, even though we are made of flesh and sticks and stones do break our bones and so on, and yet we are also spirit and the spirit is more powerful, it is, it is stronger. Here's another example. Um, take um, a mum or dad who wants to encourage their son or daughter to study harder. They want them to be self-disciplined in their approach to study because they know that learning is a great thing and that if they study hard also, that doors will open for their child um, through school and university and into their vocation and so on. So the parent can use um, uh, dramatic means, um, can, can tell their child um, that they must do a certain amount of study each night. They can forbid their child to eat before eat their dinner until they've done their homework and things like that. You can try all those sorts of things, but any parent can tell you that um, you can't force a child uh, in the long term to study. It has to be something that comes from within them. Yet the parent has an enormous amount of influence on how the spirit of the child is moved. Uh, for example, um, the, the parent, mum or dad, can certainly favour um, more suitable friends and good influences in their child's life. Um, uh, friends that are good students and are good role models. Um, and they can likewise discourage those that uh, aren't a good influence. Um, a parent can make the good choice of study as easy as possible for the child by making sure that they've got a room to study in and the equipment that they need, the textbooks or the computing or whatever it is that they need. Um, a parent can also model great learning behaviour and not be glued to the TV um, more, more than they are glued to a great book that they're reading. Uh, so the parent can model All of these things are incredibly powerful influences to the extent that we do say of children, oh, they're a chip off the old block, you know, like parents are incredibly influential and the influence is upon the spirit of the child because the spirit within us is more powerful um, than anything else. God stirs our spirit and it may be something invisible, it may be something that even is, is hard to detect when we're living through it, but it's incredibly, incredibly powerful we are spiritual beings. We are not just flesh. We are not just physical. Even we are, we are not just soul. Uh, we are more than our, our thoughts and our, our heart motivations. Uh, we are more than our desires. At our core, we are spirit. And it is, this, it is this point of our spirit that drives so much of our behavior and therefore what happens in, in our worlds. Um, uh, the Psalms talk a lot about our spirits. They, in Psalm 34, we read about a contrite spirit. In Psalm 51, a steadfast spirit. Psalm 51, verse 12, again, a willing spirit. Psalm 78, a faithful spirit. The spirit seems to be that point of us that connects with our divine creator. There is a beautiful verse in the book of James which says this, about God or do you think that scripture says without reason that God 
jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us. He jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us and gives us more grace. Uh, we are spiritual beings um, and it seems to be that communication point between us and our divine creator, as I said. Um, and it is, so therefore it is incredibly uh, powerful when God stirs the spirit, when it, whether it's King Cyrus or some other great ruler, um, when it's this, the spirit within each one of us, it is an incredibly powerful thing to happen. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, as we prepare to come back to meeting again with our brothers and sisters in our churches, um, it's a good time for us to be reflecting and, and watching out for and open to God stirring our spirits, um, to God intervening, to trusting that God is intervening in small and large ways um, every day and every week, every month and every year and every season. Um, God is a gentle, loving, interventionist God. Uh, he was even willing to come in the flesh, in the form of Jesus Christ, and to give us his spirit um, uh, after Christ ascended um, to heaven. So let me encourage us all to have an openness and an increasing clarity about how God stirs our spirits. And let me close with a challenge. How, not whether or if, but how is God stirring your spirit right now? How is God stirring your spirit? And what could you be doing to increase the stirring of God's spirit within you? Romans 8, uh, written by the Apostle Paul, encourages us to keep in step with God's spirit, to be led by the spirit above all else, to be led by the spirit, to see the world from a spiritual perspective, to understand that you know, we are so much more than flesh and blood. There is so much more within us that is invisible and yet more powerful. Um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, once wrote some poetry, she said this, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush is a fire with God, but only they who see take off their shoes. Let's be those who see God at work, um, who are people who uh, agree with Acts chapter 17, verse 28, which says, in God we live and move and have our being. So how is God stirring your spirit? How, what can you be doing um, that will enable you to be more stirred in your spirit by God? Uh, we have to seek it. We have to feed that spirit, not ignore that spirit. In Proverbs chapter two, it says this, um, Indeed, if you call out for insight and you cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand. You will find knowledge. You will get wisdom. For from the Lord come knowledge and understanding. And he holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield 
to those whose walk is blameless. He does guard the course of the just and protect the way of his faithful ones. Let us be a church that values the intervening of God, the stirring of our spirits by our great and gracious loving God. Can you imagine when we come together again, what an amazing force for good the churches, all of our churches will be if we come together with stirred spirits, confident of our interventionist God, our gracious, loving, intervening God, who works with us, his spirit to ours, transforming the world, transforming us, our lives, our towns, our cities, our age. Let's be open to our interventionist God. Thank you for listening.